I want to basically begin this whole series by saying that this whole concept of who God is is essential to who we are. As Paul had already mentioned, as I mentioned in the little video, that there's two elements that Paul emphasizes, that we are to not only watch our doctrine, but also watch our life. And so, in other words, life is connected to doctrine. Doctrine is connected to how we live. These two are inseparable. And so, in other words, the way or what you think about God will affect the quality of life that you live in God. If you tend to think of God as being a mean, angry, uh, spiteful type of a God who is capricious, then you will certainly not reflect a loving God. You will not be a loving person. You will not be kind because the God that you have come to acknowledge as God really is a false God. Sometimes I'll talk with people and they'll say, I, I don't believe in God. And I'll ask them the question, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. And oftentimes the God that they'll describe or define is a God that I just described. He's capricious. He's distant. Maybe if He is the Creator of all things, He's certainly not in any type of interaction with, with creation. In other words, the God that they describe, typically when they're communicating that to me, I'll say, it's funny because I, I actually don't believe in that God either. Because that's not the God of the Bible. In fact, the God that oftentimes most people believe in our culture is more akin to the God of deism. He's just a distant God who, if He has any interaction, it's periodic, you can't count on it. And so what I want to say is this, is that arising how we view God will affect who we are, and how we live, how we act, how we treat. And at the very core of who we are is humanity. We've got certain needs and certain passions and certain longings. We have longings to be loved and to love. We have longings to be in community. We have longings to be in fellowship with each other, to have relationship with other people. These are the elemental uh, feelings and emotions and longings and desires that we all equally share. Okay, But what I want to try to say is that all of these desires and longings and passions literally arise out of God. They arise out of God, out of who God is, out of what God is like, ultimately out of the Trinitarian nature of who God is. So God reveals Himself as such, and as we begin to go through this week by week, we're going to basically begin to see how this begins to play out in the life of believers. And how in the life of the church, what the church really is going to, or should look like, is going to be conformed by the way that we view God. What the church does with its time is going to be conformed by how we view God. How we treat each other is going to be formed by how we view God. Okay? So everything builds upon who God is. Okay? So that's where we're going to begin. I want to begin by basically giving a little bit of a statement, kind of a statement or declaration as to who the Trinity is, this is basically taken right out of our doctrinal statement. So you'll, put, you'll see it up on the screen. I want to just kind of read it to you, look at it real fast, and then we'll kind of get to work on larger passages of text. So first of all is this, in terms of who the Trinity is. He's one God who eternally exists in three persons. Okay, one God, we'll look at that in a moment here. He's one God, but in three persons. Uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And it goes on, who is co-eternal in being, is eternal in his nature and his essence and being. He's co-eternal in his nature. He's co-equal in power and in glory. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are all equal in their power. 
Yet, there is deference. We'll look at that in just a few moments here, meaning that Jesus does submit to the Father. When Jesus was on earth, He did submit to the Father. So there is deference, even though there's equality. And then having the same attributes and perfections. Okay? Meaning they're both all, or I should say, both. That's heresy. They're all free. Father, Son, and Spirit. See, strike one against me. Father, Son, and Spirit are, are all glorious in their perfections and in their attributes. So that's basically the definition of the Trinity, as I've put it there. Alright, so what we're gonna do now is we're gonna basically begin to take a look at three major questions is what this morning we'll do. We'll try to get to a lot of different passages today, many of which will be up on the screen, some of which you might need to pay attention to and write down in your notes. I did give you guys a little bit of a, a, a note to uh, their notes, but most of the, which are questions. It's not an outline of this morning's message. The reason why I did this for you guys is because I want to encourage you, if you are going to be a part of maybe one of the uh, the groups, the discussion groups about this, or if this is something that you would like to do even with your family uh, or your roommates, this is something that you can go back and maybe, dads, you can sit down with your families and go through these types of questions as we go through this on Sunday mornings or go through this in your groups with other students and whatnot. So, just for you guys to uh, use for your own personal uh, growth in terms of the subject matter we're going to be looking at. So one of the questions first we're going to be asking is probably an important question that kind of dovetails into all of this. And the first of which is, what does the Bible actually say about God? Okay, if the Bible is a revelation of who God is, what does the Bible itself actually describe who God is? What does it say? Okay, so what we're going to look at now, the very next things that we're going to be taking a look at in terms of this, is we need to understand that the Bible does have opinions as to who God is. It has revelation as to who God is. So the first thing that we're going to see in terms of what the Bible has to say about God is that there's essentially four assertions that the Bible makes. Four assertions about who God is. Okay, I'm loving this, guys. I hope you guys are too. All right, you guys excited about this? All right, both of you are. It's going to be a really good morning. All right, um, there's one God. The Bible's very clear on this. There's one God. So the first verse that we see with this is Deuteronomy 6.4. Uh, the Lord our God is one God. Central to Jewish thought and religious life was a prayer that they pray even to this day called the Shema, which literally means one. And it goes something like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. It's called the Shema. If you've ever been to a Jewish house, you've maybe noticed a little um, plaque or something like that. It's up on the door. It's called a mezuzah. Typically, traditionally within that mezuzah would be the Shema. And it's this little verse. Sometimes you'll see Jews as they're walking in or walking out. They'll kiss the mezuzah. Kiss your fingers and kiss the mezuzah. It's basically a way of saying to remind themselves we serve one God. We serve one God who has, who has revealed Himself to us and will worship Him, love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. Okay, so that's clear. Uh, Isaiah 44, verse 6 says this, Besides me, there is no God. God speaks. Besides me, there is no God. So God's emphatic about this. I'm, I'm one. One God. There's no other God. Now, there are lowercase gods, right? Small gods. But God's basically saying, they're kindergartners, all right? I'm God. I'm the Almighty God. Alright? There's nobody that even compares to my greatness. Uh, James chapter 2 verse 19. Now this is kind of an interesting verse because James happens to be the half-brother, the kid-brother of Jesus. Alright? 
So it's kind of an interesting when you just consider the fact that James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, actually is writing this book, loves Jesus, and actually believes that Jesus is God. Alright? It's, it's kind of a difficult thing for a younger kid brother to actually worship his older brother as God apart from coercion. Or reality. Alright? So either James was coerced to just acknowledge Jesus as God by repeated noogies, or he simply is God. Alright? James worships Jesus as God. And he makes this declaration in his little book. James 2.19, you believe there's one God, you do well. There's one God. He's going to go on to say, even Satan believes, even the demons believe, and they tremble. Meaning the picture is this, is that uh, one of the most orthodox of all spirit beings in the universe is Satan. Even Satan gets it right. right? This is crazy. Because sometimes we're like, Satan's all messed up in his theology. Actually, he's not. This is kind of a scary thing because it's a reality check that you can be totally straight in your theology, yet completely miss the heart of God. Satan is orthodox in his theology. He knows that there's one God. He knows that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit exist in co-equality and power and might and beauty. And yet he trembles. Alright? First uh, Timothy chapter 2 verse 5. Paul says this, for there is one God. One God. And then Jesus makes a statement in his prayer as he's praying in John chapter 17, uh, that they might know that you are the only true God. This is important because I think the implication is that Jesus is saying in the prayer, he's all, Father, I want them to know that you, you alone are the only true God, as distinct from false gods. So the reality is this, that there are false gods. There are false gods in the world in which we live. Gods that come along and say, you know, I'm God, I act like God, I'm, but in reality are false gods. So even Jesus acknowledges there's one true God, and yet a plurality or a pantheon of false gods. Okay? This is very popular what I'm going to say right now. It's going to earn a lot of points. A lot of you guys are going to be really stoked, especially in the pluralistic society we live on, live in. But the reality is this. Gods that are proclaimed amongst other religions, for example, I hear it often on the news, people trying to find some sort of uniformity amongst, you know, a pantheon of religions in America today, will say things like this, the God of uh, Islam, the God of the Jews, and the God of Christians are all the same. The reality is that's not true. Okay? The God of Islam is not the true God. Alright? Uh, Mormons. Worship God that's described as Elohim. I truly believe, again, this is really popular stuff, it's going to make a lot of points. I truly believe that the gods that are oftentimes revealed in other religions are actually demons. They're demons that make themselves viewed as God, but it's all in an effort to deceive people into thinking that this is the true and living God. Jesus makes the point very plain and clear that there's one God that's separate or distinct, and true, that's different and distinct from other false gods. Okay? Alright. We got that? Next. Okay, so first of all, we see that there's one God. One God. The second thing that we're going to see that the Bible asserts that the Father is God. Okay, here's an example. The next one, that we look at this in terms of the Father being God. Most 
uh, world religions or most cults, most heretics, most false prophets actually, actually get this one right. Okay? Most believe that the Father is God. So I'm not even going to go there. Alright? It's not even argued. Point. Most believe that the Father is actually revealed as God. So I'll go on to the next one. The third assertion is that Jesus is also viewed as God. Okay, here's an example. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 says this, Who, though he was in the form of God, this is Paul the Apostle writing to a small church in a region called Philippi. And as he writes to these guys, he makes a statement. He says, Jesus, even though he was in the form of God, that's another way of saying he was God, what he goes on to say, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So Paul's assertion is this, is that Jesus was throughout eternity past in as God. But during a period of time or a season of existence, steps into our world, takes upon the form of a servant, becomes a man. It's another way of saying uh, what John's going to look at in the next verse that we're going to see. John, where he uses a different metaphor to describe this, that in the beginning was the Word. So the next verse you'll see as it comes up here, right there. All right. John says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John uses a different metaphor to describe this. Basically the same content or subject matter that Paul just said. But the point is this, in the beginning was the Word. So who's the Word? Uh, John will tell us this in a moment. And it says the Word was with God. So the Word cohabited with God. That's the Father. Whoever the Word is, was in the beginning. The Word happens to cohabitate with God. And then he goes on to say, and the Word was God. Okay? Important to know at this point, I think, um, in the neural translation, which is the Jehovah's Witness translation, they actually add a little word. They insert a little word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, they add this little preposition, a God. The Word was a God. That's a complete distortion of the actual Greek. There's no reason to put the word a there. It is only added there to support their idea of tritheism. We'll look at that in a moment here. That rather than one God revealed in three persons, there's three gods. All right. Some of you right now might be like, why are we studying this? This seems really difficult. This is a guy by the name of Augustine, early church father. All right. He lived around the 300s. He studied the doctrine of the Trinity for some 19 years and wrote one of the most uh, leading works on the Trinity that literally stands to this day. 19 years. So if you come in here, you're like, this is tough. Yes, it's tough. You're like, this is hard, I'm lost. Probably. But hopefully, we'll be able to bring you back to why all this stuff makes sense in the first place. All right? You might think, this is just like doctrine. See, this doctrine divides. No, no, no. What we're trying to do is to basically go off of the revelation that God has given us about Himself. Because we'll find out in a minute here, what we believe about God matters in terms of how it shapes the way that we live. Okay? So this is deeply practical in, in the way that we live our lives. Okay. So John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Verse 14, just in case we're still trying to figure out who's the Word, John tells us, and the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John's assertion is that Jesus 
He uses the metaphor of Jesus being the Word. He was in the beginning with the Father. He was with the Father. And He is God. And then from the beginning, from heaven or this presence of God, steps into our world. And we'll look at why in a moment here. Alright, so the next thing we're going to see about Jesus is this. In uh, John 8, it says, And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So, whatever the word I am meant was a point of great contention for the religious leaders. They didn't like that. right? We can read that in our Western perspective, in our context, and be like, what? God just said I am. What does that mean? Well, to the Jews, it meant a lot. Right? Uh, when Moses was in the wilderness... Uh, for 40 years, and God was about to send Moses back to the children of Israel to deliver them, God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush. Alright, Moses is out in the wilderness talking to this burning bush. I'm certain he was thinking he was losing it. I'm talking to a burning bush. It's talking back to me. What's happening here? And all of a sudden, God says, it's me, Moses. I'm God. And I'm calling you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to set my people free. And Moses is like, uh, Pharaoh's going to want to know what God is sending me. All right, right? I mean, I can't just say, hey, a burning bush in the wilderness on a really ridiculously hot day spoke to me. It just doesn't go over too well in the courts of Pharaoh. I got to give him a name. Okay, and then God says, tell Pharaoh I am sent you. It's the name of God. Jesus with the religious leaders, speaks emphatically, before Abraham was, I am. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm God. The religious leaders knew that because they picked up stones and wanted to kill him. Later on, Jesus talking with the religious leaders, he asked him, for which of the good works have I done? Are you guys going to kill me? Is it the feeding the hungry, helping the lepers, opening the eyes of the blind, making sure that lame legs can actually walk. I mean, what, which miracle are you going to kill me for? And the response to Jesus was, not for a good deed, but because you being a man have made yourself equal with God. That's why we're going to kill you. Jesus ultimately went to the cross to die because Him being a mere man claimed to be God. Okay? John chapter 20, verse 28, one of the most beautiful verses. We just looked at this a couple weeks ago. Jesus rises again from the dead. He comes back into a room where His disciples are at. One of his disciples by the name of Thomas refused to believe in Jesus. He was the skeptic. He says, I refuse to believe in Christ unless I can touch his hands or his feet and actually see for myself and feel for myself that he really is truly alive. Uh, Jesus appears in a room uh, several days after he's been risen again from the dead. And there's Thomas. He turns around and Jesus says, hey, Tom, feel my wounds. Thomas all of a sudden turns around, recognizes that Christ is there, falls on his hands and feet, and basically proclaims, my Lord and my God. Even Thomas, after the resurrection, an unbeliever recognizes there's something profoundly powerful about Jesus to the point where he actually calls Him my God. Okay, as we continue, as we take a look at this, here's another one. First um, John chapter 5, verse 20, it says this, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Again, this is John, one of, John's be- one of Jesus' best friends. One of the things you've got to know about John I think is really important. I think out of every New Testament writer, 
John is going to have probably one of the most reliable accounts. Not only was John one of the closest friends of Jesus, but check this out. When Jesus died on the cross, and there was John at the foot of the cross, tells you how devoted he was to Christ, John's, or Jesus' mother was right there. So Jesus asked John, take care of my mom. And we're told that from that point forward until the point where Mary died, basically Mary lived with John. John took care of Mary. How sweet is that? I mean, you're just sitting there, you're like, you, know, you can get to know anything you want to know about Jesus. Hey, Mary, what did Jesus do when you didn't make the food right? Right? You know what I'm saying? Just like, what, like, what, like, what, anything you want to know about Jesus. Just like anything you want. John had literally this inside track of knowing anything you want to know. So he writes this, this very last sentence. He says, He, Jesus, is the true God and, if I can add a word there without damaging the text, is the source of eternal life. Jesus is the true God. And out of Him comes eternal life. That's John's point. That Jesus is God. So, first of all, the Bible asserts there's one God, the Father is God, the Son is God. Now, fourthly, the Spirit is God. One of the common misconceptions with regard to the Spirit is it is oftentimes viewed as a force, as an inanimate force that just kind of operates and moves throughout creation. There's no personality there. There's no relationship there. There's no community there with the Spirit. Yet in reality, that's actually not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that He is a person. Here's some examples of this. So the next thing you'll see up on the screen is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. It says this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He can be grieved that in relationship with the Spirit of God, should we sin? Should we break fellowship with uh, God in this type of thing? Things that we do that are just lame. Paul talks about this. That oftentimes will grieve the Spirit of God. It's hard to grieve nuclear power. Energy. Energy doesn't get frustrated. Energy doesn't get sad. Electricity doesn't have bad days. The Spirit does. He gets frustrated. He is grieved. I don't know if he has bad days, but I know he gets grieved. Alright? 1 Thessalonians 5.19 Do not quench the Spirit. Don't break the Spirit's working in our lives. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Uh, one of the early leaders was preaching and says this to the people, you stiff-necked people. You are uncircumcised in hearts and ears, and you always resist the Holy Spirit. There is a way in which the Holy Spirit can be resisted. So, if there is any still lingering doubts as the Holy Spirit, God, here's one final verse among many. I'll just use this one as an example. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. The story is in the early church. What you have is the church was growing. They had needs in the early church, kind of like what we just shared earlier today with uh, Leah and Balaj. And oftentimes as these needs had arisen, there were people within the body that said, I'll help out. I'll help out. And there was a couple in the early church by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. They had a large parcel of land and they thought, yeah, let's sell our land and give the proceeds, give the money to the church. Let's bless it so that it can go and be distributed to those that are in need. So here's the problem. Here's what we're told in the story. Ananias and Sapphira kind of made this like little, you know, 
deviant husband and wife deal that uh, let's 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 act like we're going to give all of it, all right? But in reality, let's keep back a portion. It doesn't tell us how much it was. Maybe it was forty percent. Maybe they kept back forty percent for themselves. There's nothing wrong with keeping forty back forty percent back for yourself. That's perfectly legit. But the problem is, is when they came and brought the proceeds to the early church leaders, they said, "Look, we are giving you everything. All right, we're homeless now, so that others can have homes." Alright, that's, that's the type of people we are. I know. We're giving. We're generous. We love Jesus. But, you know, you guys need people like us. Alright, that was the type that they come to Peter and the other apostles and saying, we're giving everything to you guys. Peter receives this word from God, but they're lying. They're not actually giving everything, but they're actually lying. So Peter confronts him and he says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? It's a lie to the Holy Spirit. And to keep back part for yourself of the proceeds of the land. You haven't lied to men, but to God. So the implication very clearly is that the deception was not just simply to them, but it was to the Holy Spirit, who then he adds is God. The Holy Spirit is viewed as part of what we would call the Godhead, the Trinity. So again, assertion. The Bible speaks of this way. There's one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. And the Spirit is God. All are viewed as God. Here's a few other verses to identify this. I believe, personally, that even though the word Trinity is not in the Bible, this is one of the biggest arguments people will oftentimes make about the Trinity. They're like, well, the word Trinity is not even in the Bible. It's not. Right? It's not. It's okay. It's, it's not in there. But, just because the word Trinity is not in the Bible doesn't mean the concept. The word Trinity was a word that was first coined, believed by church historians, by, the guy, named, by a guy named Tertullian um, in the first uh, few centuries of the church. It was his way to try to identify what we had just read. All these scriptures that we had just read and identified, this is Tertullian's way of basically bringing about some point of continuity with Life and reality and what the Bible asserts or teaches. That there's one God in three different ways revealed. So some people might argue and say, in fact, if you read Dan Brown's book, if you saw the Da Vinci Code, and I thought the book was better than the movie, by the way. Um, it's still full of a bunch of heresy. But at the same time, uh, the book was good. It was definitely one that kept you on the edge of the seat. Um, anyways, there's a little dialogue that goes on in the book. All right, It's just all fiction, guys. All right? So, anyways, in the book, there's this dialogue that goes on, I don't know, see Sir Teabing or something like that. He's talking about how the early church conspired around 300 A.D. under Constantine to basically try to make up um, new doctrines to establish control. That was their way to bring about control. Yet in reality, for one, that's just simply not true. And they'll say things like one of the doctrines that was established in the third, in the fourth century was the doctrine of the Trinity. Yet in reality, again, this is not true. One of the biggest arguments that people say against that is that, well, then why isn't there a lot of writings and teachings about the Trinity in the first 300 years? Alright? Okay, here's my answer. Alright, among others. There's a lot of reasons, but here's one big reason, I think. The first 300 years of the church were very turbulent. People were being killed. Pastors were being 
abducted, sent away to distant islands. They were being killed. They were being tortured. Uh, they were, you know, people were on the run. Churches were having to meet underground. Uh, and when they did gather together, it was literally just enough time to be able to say, listen, pray for me. My life's hard. And we got to split again before the Roman legions come and kill us. So when you're trying to have church under those conditions, it's a little bit difficult to be pushing on a lot of systematic theology. Okay? It's kind of hard. But that doesn't mean that these truths were not a part of the early teachings, which I believe they were. So the point again is this, is that these were teachings that were definitely part of the early church. They're definitely in the Bible as we see that. There's other passages, one of which is Genesis chapter 1. The Old Testament, I believe, gives impression of the Trinity. All right, because some people might say, well, I don't think the Trinity is at all in the Old Testament. Well, if you're reading the Old Testament and looking for the word Trinity, I guarantee you right now you won't find it. If you're looking for a verse that says Jesus is God, uh, Spirit's God, and the Father's God, you probably won't find that one either. But what I think you will find is there are allusions to this New Testament doctrine called the Trinity. All right, Paul refers to it this way. That this is a mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament, but revealed now in these days through Jesus. Give me an example. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who created the heavens and the earth? God is stated. God is the author. He's the Father. God the Father creates the heaven and the earth. Verse 2, The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. We'll get into this in two more weeks as we begin to take a look at creation. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Secondly, you have the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. God the Father, God the Spirit. Third, in verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. How does God create light? Speaks. John picks up on this. And he uses the very same language of Genesis 1. And he says, in the beginning was the Word. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. This begins to make sense as you read other passages in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament. For example, Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. And then the Lord said, this is after man's sin, behold, man has become like one of us. This is a troubling type of passage to deal with, especially from a Hebrew perspective. And to be honest with you, I've studied this a lot, especially in ancient Hebrew texts. One of the things I love to read, I love to read what, what are they, what, what, there's a great guy by the name of Rambon, alright? Uh, Maimonides, Naimonides, there's a couple other leaders, uh, Jewish leaders that were well-known teachers. I, I love reading what these guys had to say. None of these guys, can come to some conclusive understanding. What does it mean when God says, let us make man in our image? Who's He talking to? Right? I mean, when God says, let us, who's He talking to? Angels? Some would suggest angels. The problem with that is the Bible. We're not made in the image of angels. We're made in the image of God. So I think even in the Old Testament, you've got these hints at plurality in unity. The Trinity. Okay? So let's move on. 
One of the things I want to take a look at right now is in the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah chapter 61, kind of wrap it up on these uh, little verses right here. Isaiah 61 says this, um, Isaiah's writing here, it says, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring forth the good news. Alright, this is an Old Testament verse, but again, take a look at this. There's somebody speaking. Some would say Isaiah's speaking. Yes, but I think Isaiah's prophetically speaking, I'll tell you why in a moment here. So whatever, whoever's writing this or speaking this, he's basically saying, the Spirit of God, God the Father and God the Spirit are on me for a particular purpose to anoint me to preach forth the good news to the poor. Alright? In the New Testament, Luke chapter, I'm tying myself up here, Luke chapter 4 verse 16, Jesus walks into a synagogue on a Sabbath day, he takes a scroll, he begins to read it. It just so happens to be that particular day, Jesus walks in, reads the scroll, and the particular passage that he happens to read on that particular day is Isaiah chapter 61. Alright? So here's what Jesus does. He opens the scroll as was customary. He would probably have walked around with the scroll. They would oftentimes do that. As they would walk around the synagogue with the open scroll, people would then kiss the scroll as a sign of uh, respect to God and for His Word. Then Jesus would have read the scroll and He would have read the very words that we just read. The words being, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me to anoint me, to preach the good news, to do heal the poor and take care of all the needs of other people around me. It's basically my paraphrase. Jesus then rolls up the scroll, sits back down in the presence of everybody on church that particular Sabbath. Jesus then says these words, This day, this prophecy is fulfilled. Today, in your very midst, I am the one who is anointed by the Spirit of the Father. Right there, Jesus is basically saying, I, the Son, have anointed by the Spirit of the Father. And I'm on a mission to proclaim the message that God has sent me to proclaim. Okay, the last one is this. We'll move on. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, I believe it is, Matthew 28, verse 19, uh, Jesus basically commissions his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel. One of the things that, the, uh, that Jesus communicates to him is says, when you go to the world, preach the gospel, make disciples. He says, also baptize. And he basically says, the way you do the baptism is you baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So the very induction of believers, or would-be believers, into this fellowship or community with God is to be done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Signifying that he's basically being brought into this community of God that we call the Trinity. Okay? What are some common misconceptions about this? The second thing we'll take a look at. Why is this important? Well, in short, the reason why this is important is because God, there's a very practical reason why. It's because God creates us as worshipers. Alright? God creates us as worshipers. We are made in the image of God. And by being made in the image of God, God has created us or designed us in such a way whereby we will worship. It's not an issue of, you know, do I worship or don't I worship? It's an issue of what will you worship? Alright? 
Uh, G.K. Chesterton, love the guy, he's a great writer. He writes this, he said something to this, I'm going to paraphrase it, uh, but he says something to this effect. When people choose not to believe in God, it's not that they will believe in nothing, but rather they will believe in anything. It's true. When someone says, I'm not going to believe in God, it's not as if they just come to the place like, I don't believe in anything at all. Actually, you believe in everything or anything. Anything that comes onto the screen, anything is just a blip on your radar. You believe in it. You are prone to fall for it. The problem is, is that because God creates us as worshipers of himself, what God's intention would be so that those that worship him will become like him. Okay? Those that worship God the way that God is will ultimately end up becoming like him. God is love. Those that worship God will become loving. Right? God is just. means he cares about righteousness. Those that worship God will become just. We will begin to care about other people's needs. Or we will begin to care about seeing people that are wronged or taken advantage of. That's God's ideal. So that ultimately, through the worship of the one true living God, as surely as the waters cover the earth, so will the earth be filled with the glory of the Lord. How? Through worshipers who mirror God's greatness. Now what happens when someone comes along and says, here's the God you worship, and they show you a mirror that's broken into a thousand pieces. This is your God. Worship Him. It's shattered. We won't reflect properly. It'll be more like a disco ball than a light or a son of righteousness. God's intention is to fill the earth with His greatness and with His glory. So Satan has come along throughout history and he sought to tamper with who God is and how He's revealed. Some of the common misconceptions, there's a lot of them, but a couple of which we'll look at right now real fast with regard to the Trinity are these. All right, The first of which is tritheism. It's the belief or the understanding that basically God is three. There's three gods. They're basically in a triad with one another, form a triad with each other, and they work amongst their ranks, taking kind of a pantheistic type of a, not a pantheist, but like a pantheon, a multitude of gods working together. Another way is there's been mistakes is what's typically called uh, modalism. And what this uh, originates out of is a guy by the name of Sibelius who lived in the early first few hundred uh, years of the church. He was trying to understand the Trinity he was trying to realize that there's one God, and so he came up with this understanding that there's one God, but he's revealed in several different ways. So maybe the Father, who is God, will sometimes appear as the Son. Sometimes the Father will appear in spirit form. There's different modes in which the Father will appear and make himself known. This is called modalism. This is another view that basically rejects the uniqueness and the distinctness, distinctiveness of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. Uh, Trinitarian theology basically is this. If there is one God, three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Okay, as we move on to the last section, I want to basically ask this question one more time in terms of why is it important really for us to view God correctly? Now, as I just mentioned, it's important because ultimately as we become worshipers, we will become like that which we worship. So it does matter. 
how we view God. It does matter that we understand God in the way in which He's chosen to reveal Himself. That this is important for us. Let me give you an example. If your perspective of God is that He's like this old man with a very like light-colored, long beard, and He's really grumpy. right? Really grumpy. Sort of capricious. He's prone to throw a thunderbolt or two down at humanity just to stir things up. Alright, if that's your view of God, then what happens is we run from that type of God. That's not the type of God we want to have any interaction with. And yet, in reality, you can see how Satan loves to do this. He loves to drive people away from God. One of the chief ways in which he does this is he creates false perspectives of God in which we resist. And rightfully so we resist. Alright? But as we begin to see God as He truly is in triune nature, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are in harmony, in unity, in synchronization, in loving community with each other. We begin to see a different perspective as how God truly seeks to be revealed and how God interacts with His creation even though it's fallen. Alright. So let me put it this way, and this is where we kind of summarize everything together. The Trinity ultimately is important because what it does is it forms the foundation of our understanding of God in this particular way. It begins to basically form our understanding of the Gospel. Let me give you an example. In John chapter 3, Jesus is having this dialogue with a guy by the name of Nicodemus. And as he's talking with him, he's a religious leader. One of the things that Jesus says to Nicodemus is that in order for you to get into the kingdom of the Father, you've got to be born again by the Spirit. And that comes about by the Son being lifted up on the cross. So Jesus literally speaking to Nicodemus saying, the way this whole thing works is God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son are working together for your good. Okay? Here's another example. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. I don't have time to go through this one, but I encourage you to read on your own. It's a beautiful verse that basically, in essence, describes salvation like this. That it's from the Father, by the Son, through the Spirit. So the way that we are saved, the way that we are made right with God, is because it goes to the Father, by the Son, through the Spirit. So let's put it this way. In this loving community of God, Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, all three are working together to redeem and restore fallen mankind. The second thing that we see is this, is that it lays the foundation for love. Alright? One of the most common uh, quoted verses about God is this, and I would even say uh, misquoted verses, is 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. It says this, Anyone who does not love does not know God. So it's just straight up about this. He's like, look, you think you know God? If you don't love, it just simply gives evidence to the fact that you don't know God. John says, because God is love. What does that mean? It means that God in this Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, has always been in this loving relationship. Always. In fact, the ancient Christians had a word for this called perichoresis. It was basically established, um, and in a lot of ways forms the, the basis is the way that Greek and Orthodox churches 
understand this is uh, originated by a guy named John of Damascus. He was born into a Muslim family, but God saved him. And he began to realize that part of this beautiful picture of God Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in Trinity is that they're together in this love. They love each other. They love each other. The Spirit loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Spirit and the Son. They're in loving harmony and community with each other. And this concept of perichoresis is, can also be understood as like the dance of God. So the Eastern Orthodox and the Orthodox churches today view salvation as like this, that God from eternity past was in this dance of God, this perichoresis. And out of this loving, harmony, unity, dance of God, God creates all of creation to join in the dance. To join in this rhythmic, beautiful dance from the smallest item on the atomic level to antimatter was all part of God's original plan to join in this dance of God, in this cheapest of creation being humanity. And yet what happens is man sins. And sin literally belittles God, but at the same time breaks rhythm the dance of God. We're out of step. The reality is, as humanity, we have belittled God by sinning, by being sinners, and we are out of step with the Creator. And Jesus, in stating that God is love, is basically clearly stating that God has sent me as a dance partner to restore the broken step. To repair to take care of the judgment that you deserve. To reestablish the rhythm. To put to right the wrongs. The sin. To restore that which was corrupted and stained to the fall. Jesus is in this loving community. The Trinity forms this basis of love. Do you know that a lot of us have no idea what love is? There's guys right now in this room. Beth, you're sleeping with your girlfriend and you're pulling that but I love you card. You don't love your girlfriend. You don't. You're selfish. You're living in a selfish attitude that says, I want something from you and I will take it. Love says, I will give to you. I will call you in and I will do what's best for you. The love that says, I will take, is not the love that's Trinitarian. It's love that is satanic. It's a love that takes and rapes and destroys and wounds and crushes. The love of God is Trinitarian and heals and comforts and, and restores and renews. That's Trinitarian love. Okay? We also see that the Trinity also lays the foundation for community. And as I already mentioned that long before sin entered the world, God was in loving community with Himself. God created Mankind, and he said this, it's not good for man to be alone. Do you know that we were created for community? Do you know the mentality that says, I'm independent, I will do what I want, is nowhere a part of the Trinitarian nature of God? The mentality that says, I don't need anybody, is actually satanic. It really is. Trinitarian life says, I need each other. I need each one of you. I need the body. I need God. 
I need fellowship. It also forms the foundation for honesty. Do you know that there are no hidden agendas within the Trinity? There's no duplicity. Jesus is never trying to deceive the Father. The Father is never trying to deceive the Spirit. There's nothing that they're trying to cover up or hide at all, ever. There's, there's just open honesty. There's transparency within the Trinity. There's nothing to hide. There's no sin to hide. Do you realize that in relationships, that's one of the number one things that just destroys relationships? This is why pornography is horrible. I mean, this is why I, I hear it all the time. People come in and they're just like, listen, we're married, but my husband can't control where his eyes go, and I can't trust him now. Double life. And it destroys community and fellowship and honesty. It's destroyed. Trinitarian life is not duplicitous. It's open, transparent. It's beautiful. I mean, deep in your heart, isn't that the way you want relationships to be? Right? I mean, we want relationships that are like that. It's just like we're open. I know what he's thinking. All right? And it's a major miracle for the guy to be like, I, praise God, know what she's thinking. All right? Uh, It's just like, this is good. This is good. It's always hard when either nobody knows what they're thinking. The fifth thing is this. It lays the foundation for humility. Do you know that never Jesus gets jealous of the Father's glory? Never. Jesus never looks at the honor and glory and fame that's given to God and never says, I want some of that. The Spirit never looks at Jesus as He's worshipped and exalted and adored throughout the world and says, I wish that was mine. There's no jealousy. There's nothing but humility amongst the ranks. That's what God calls us together to be a part of. The sixth thing is this. We're almost done. Is submissiveness. It's a beautiful thing. First uh, Corinthians verse 11 says this. Verse 3. The head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is the Father. The head of Christ is God, or the Father. I mentioned earlier, even though they're equal, there's still deference, right? If you're married, you know that you're equal, all right? If you don't know this yet, uh, you need to learn that, all right? Men, you're not better than the woman. Women, you're not better than the men. You're equal. Created equal in the eyes of God. However, there is deference. There is an order there that God sets up. And the order is not because of sin. The order is simply made because that's how God is in Trinitarian nature. And when you begin to understand this deference, that's what begins to shape New Testament thought and other passages that describe things like um, women respect and honor your husbands and submit to your husbands as to the Lord. It's this idea that if you have a husband that loves Christ and loves you and respects you, then honor him and respect him. If God has chosen to graciously give you a boss that's a good boss, he's nice, he's kind, respect him, honor him, submit to him. Paul talks about that. If we've got leaders that are civil leaders in our country that seek to honor God in certain ways or try to just establish righteousness, then submit to them is what the apostle would say. The Bible even talks about if God has given you leaders in the church 
that are godly men, that are seeking for your well-being as godly men, shepherds, pastors, elders, then submit to them and respect them. Alright? That doesn't mean that we can't be challenged. We're not above the law. I'm obviously got a lot of issues and I'm working through myself. But the bottom line is, is that if we at this church love you. We love you. It's just, it's, we love you guys. And there's the reality that God calls us out of deference to one another to serve one another, to be submitted to one another. Out of love. Jesus submits to the Father. The Spirit is sent out by Jesus and the Father. There's this beauty in submission. Do you know that if you're here today and in your heart you say, I don't want to submit to God. I refuse to trust anybody other than myself. Do you know that those attributes are exactly like Satan? It's exactly how Satan lives. He says, I won't resist. I won't, I won't accept God. I won't trust Him. I won't follow Him. I won't do what He calls me to do. I won't trust anybody except myself. That is satanic. Okay? But when we're able to simply say, God, I submit to You. I love You. That's Trinitarian life. It's beautiful. That's what God calls us to. The last thing is this, I'm done. Yeah, I actually have the worship guys come out right now. We're going to finish up on this. Is the foundation of the Trinity. The Trinity ultimately lays this foundation universally, church-wide, worldwide, for joy. Do you know that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are always joyful? Always happy. Overflowing in joy. I said this earlier. If your view of God is that He's a grumpy old man... And he's always just kind of looking for an angle to destroy your life, mess things up for you, that somehow you've been sold a bill of goods. That's not the biblical picture of God. The biblical picture of God is that God, in His very essence, long before He created anything, was always joyful. And He's always joyful. This is passage, I love this. It's out of a book called Zephaniah. This guy is just some like ninja prophet. Zephaniah 3.17 says this, uh, The Lord your God is in your midst. He's mighty to save, and He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. I love this. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Guys, just try to get this in your mind. The picture of God that Zephaniah tells us, the Bible describes to us, is that God is an overjoyed God. The joy of God is deeper than anything we can ever even dream of or imagine. The goals in a lot of our hearts is we just want some of that joy, isn't it? And oftentimes those things that we turn to for joy or for happiness or community, it's as if we go to these junk drawers, open them up, and we find a bunch of broken things that somehow we think will make us whole. The way that we're made whole is not by broken things. It's by a whole God. It's by a complete God who is Trinitarian in His nature, who is community, who is loving, who is gracious, who is kind, who is joyful. That's the God 
that Jesus stepped into this world to bring us back into fellowship with. 